Well, for those of you that were not in the uh, workshop I led, uh, I got to give an explanation of party God. Uh, and Mary said to me, walking out, did they know what a snow day is? Well, for those of you from Southern California, a snow day is when everything is canceled. School is canceled, banks are closed. It's a day where nothing happens. And uh, it's really a glorious thing. And uh, what I, I got on some rant at the end of my workshop about how we have a total misconception of who God is, that, that we think God is this slave driver, that he's never satisfied, that he wants to stretch us and hurt us, and that that's kind of who we think God is. And the truth is, God is someone who really wants us to love life, love him, and to have maximum enjoyment and maximum impact in life. And uh, so I did a study this fall on the uh, festivals in the Old Testament and the Sabbath. And I, I did the math and it's like, whoa, 72, can you guys hear, is this thing working? Okay, 72 days of the calendar year, the creator of the universe commanded that his people would have a snow day. 52 of those days are Sabbaths. And the other 20 are called festivals and feasts. And only one of those remaining 20 days was like a fast day. And the others were feast days. And on one of them, God commanded like a family reunion camp out with everybody to come and build booths and tents and play volleyball and all that kind of stuff. And that God is totally into his people enjoying him. And uh, somehow, in our warped understanding of what Christ did, we think God has come to ruin our party instead of make our party. And the facts are that God is someone who loves parties. So that was the party God thing, if you missed it. And uh, I hope that, that, you know, one of the things that we've got to do as we read the New Testament, is say, I want my view of God to be the same as Jesus' view of God. And so we, we read through the New Testament, especially the gospel, saying, now how did Jesus view God, his Father, and how do I view my Father? And if we begin to do that, we'll begin to uh, align our understanding of who God is with reality. Uh, and because if we don't, then when the rapture comes, we're going to be shocked at who God is. And it'll be a rupture instead of a rapture for some people, you know. And uh, so I think the more we can know who God really is from what Jesus revealed, the better off we'll be. So I, the part of the, the sequence of what we're trying to do, if you look at the uh, slogan over here, widen my world, and that was sort of, Straps deal that he was trying to say, look around. And what are the three kinds of people that he told us about last night that we encounter? Do you remember? Landscape, machines, and what was the last one? Real people. And uh, so he kind of gave a huge overview. And what I've tried to do 
and want to do tonight is sort of say, okay, with a wide world, how do we really narrow our focus in terms of how do I enter into this world? How, how do I really be the salt and light that he was talking about? And uh, I provided you guys pretty extensive notes and for two reasons. One, this is retreat and you don't need to get writer's cramp. This isn't school, okay? And two, our friends from Germany, good night. If I had to learn a second language and take notes, I mean, you guys will have a hard enough time translating, much less writing it down. So I wanted to uh, give you guys as much as I could um, so that you can try to listen and understand. And the important thing is uh, to hear what God might want to be saying to you. And uh, I was talking to Abraham, who is up there with his translator, and he, he said, I'm, I'm not getting all of it, but I'm getting some of it. And I'm just convinced that, Abraham, if, if God wants you to know something, you'll get it. You know, you'll hear what he has to say to you. And uh, I'd say that to everybody here. Don't sweat it. Just listen to what God has to say to you and then move with that. So I want to talk about a four, four steps process of narrowing your world. And uh, I think this is true of all of how you go from enter into anything new. And if it's a job, if you're going to a new job, these, these four things apply. If you're, if you're going into uh, a ministry, these things apply. If you're trying to meet someone new and build a relationship with them, these things apply. And uh, these four things, and, and I hope that God will help you see this, that uh, this is how transformation happens life to life. And so I want to start with the first one is to enter in, to leave the confines of your home where you feel comfortable and in control and pursue relationships with those around you. You've got to move outside the uh, comfort of the castle walls of your life and put the drawbridge down and engage with the people who are around you where God has put you, opening your eyes, risking and, and seeing what contribution God would have to bring through you. Uh, the book of Genesis, and I have five passages of Scripture, and I'm not going to read those tonight, but five passages of Scripture where God reveals His plan that all the world would be blessed, starting in a very small place with one person named Abraham and going to the ends of the earth. And of course, that... That went from Abraham to Jesus to us to carry change into every segment of life. And that's gonna, that means that there's going to be cross-cultural stuff. And I want to read this definition of cross-cultural that I, I think is really right on. Cross-cultural adaptation occurs when people from one culture move to a different culture. Did you know when you get a job that, that every job has a culture, every business has a culture, every university has a culture? 
uh, all the people's groups that John was talking about last night, the frats, the jocks, the whatever, those are all have their own culture. And what Christ has called us to do as his followers is to enter into these cultures that he places around us and put, leads us toward. Uh, move from one culture to a different culture, learning the rules, societal norms, customs, and language of the new culture by bringing their existing thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and beliefs with them. That would be you. You're taking your beliefs with you. A person will integrate into that new society while adjusting and accepting to the new standards, thereby creating a multicultural person. And I think the reason I like that is that it shows that you don't leave something behind, you take everything with you, and you impact this new place where you're going, this new person. What this describes is really the missionary task. It's what Martha has done in uh, Germany and then in Spain, where she went and she learned a language, she learned a culture, she learned to love the people. It's no different than what I did when I moved from Oklahoma to Nebraska. Someone would say, well, gee, it's America, it's the same thing. And I'm going, you haven't been to Nebraska yet. In fact, this is the truth. I don't know if I t told you German guys this or not. I wish I'd gone to Germany 41 years ago because I would have understood Nebraska a lot better. Nebraska was settled by Germans. And what I saw in the German culture, I had seen in Nebraska that was totally different from Southern culture that I grew up in. And it was like, whoa, that is still 140 years later, the culture where God has called me to function in. And uh, I have a friend that lives in, he lived in Scotland for a while, he lives in Ireland now, and You'd think there isn't much difference between England, Scotland, America, Canada. You know, they all speak English. No problem. Well, I've got news for you. Uh, it may be even harder to go someplace where they speak the same language because you're fooled. Well, they got to uh, Scotland and they said they'd, they'd see these things going on in Scotland and they would think, oh, wow, that's just so cool how they do that. That's cool that they wear these white outfits when they're working on the highway and the, the little hats, and that's cool. And after a few weeks or months, it was like, yeah, that's quaint. That's, that's really quaint. It's really sort of backward that they would do it this way. And then it was like, that is irritating what they're doing. The way they stop traffic and this and that, and they shut down three lanes when they're working on one, that is irritating. And then it's like, that is wrong, what they're doing. <laughs> that is totally wrong, wrong, wrong. And they ended up with, that's different. That's totally different. And you know, I think when you enter into a new culture, that, that we all go through these shifts of, at first it's really exciting, and then it, it gets irritating. But you got to reach the point of saying it's just different. This person, the way they do things, it's, it's just different. So it's a missionary task. It's also the disciples maker's task. I remember a guy I was sitting around 
spending time with regularly, and I never thought these words would come out of my mouth, but they did. I said, Bo, I really like you better with blue hair than orange hair. <laughs> you know, there had been a time in my life that I would have said, well, that's cool, that's quaint, that's irritating, that's wrong, and it was just different. And uh, his mom still thought it was wrong, but it was different. <laughs> and so in, in any time you're engaging people that are different from you, you've got to realize that you're going to go through this turbulence as you enter in. You're going to try to figure out, so what, what is going on here and who really is this person? Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus Christ to leave behind all of his holiness and power and to enter in to this planet as a baby in a barn, in a feed trough with a human as a father and a human as a mother to care for him and what it must have been like to make that journey. You see, he entered in completely. He became flesh. And if we are going to be effective as followers of Jesus, we have got to enter into the lives of our people who are different from us and to be okay with them different, being different and to love them being different. John 1.14 says he was full of grace and truth and that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Philippians 2, 5 through 12 says he took the form of a servant, that, that that's our Lord, that he set the pace on how do you, how can you be transformational? You become and relate to the people that you're trying to love and to reach. So how do you enter into another person's life? And, uh, I think the first thing is you've got to listen to the stories that people offer you. Their stories tell you who they are. And there are lots of levels to listening to stories. And one of the things when I sit across someone, I'm trying to narrow my focus. I try to listen to a story. And this has to do with, the, with people I bump to, into that are landscape people. Mary and I were in line at uh, Buzz Lightyear on Friday night. And there was this couple in front of us that were taking, trying to, the mo mom was trying to take a picture of the dad and the two kids. And I said, hey, I'd be glad to take that picture. So I did. So suddenly, these are no longer landscape people. These are actual people, and they were wearing Iowa Hawkeye stuff, and I ignored that. I don't have, you know, it's like, okay, I'm being very generous here. But uh, anyway, I took their picture, and it was, it was a long line. It was long enough for us to learn a good bit about their lives, and for me to uh, throw out three times some bait about to get into a spiritual discussion which they didn't take any of the bait. But I was able to, to engage them, pray for them, um, 
I doubt anywhere else at Disneyland the name Jesus Christ would be kept come up other than someone frustrated in a line. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, listen to their stories. I began to ask them questions about their story. And uh, that he went to school at Boise State and he loved their football team. And we talked about when Boise beat OU, their big moment in the Orange Bowl, I think. And uh, we just had these, this conversation and listening to their story. And I, I learned about them and I, I could sense a, something going on with them spiritually just from listening to that story. Uh, I listen to their words. That's level one. And most of us just communicate on that level. We just only respond to what's said. Like when I order at McDonald's, I just want my words to be responded to, right? You just want a hamburger and fries. You don't want to get into a deep discussion with the person that's serving you, right? And so that's level one. But there's another level. Listen to how their words are said. This takes it down a layer. And what you want to do as you're entering in is you, is you want to move down layers and find out more about people, to ask about their families, to ask. In, in this conversation with these people at uh, Buzz Lightyear, it's like, so where your parents live? What do they think about you living in Iowa? With, you took their grandchildren away, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Have they been to meet you? Have they been to see you? And I mean, we just asked questions. Did you know they didn't ask us one question? And you know, that's usually how it is. If you're going to enter in, people aren't used to people entering in. They don't know to ask you questions. And so you just sort of take that initiative to ask questions and to, to try to listen a little deeper. The second thing, you try to engage their soul. You want to find out... What do they really need? What do they need? And you kind of poke around. You pay attention to, to what they say and the way they say it. You pay attention to what they don't say. Uh, you pay attention to uh, what you're feeling as you're talking to them and they're responding. And I've learned to enter in that if you're really wanting to know someone, you kind of have to go with your gut feelings like, wow, they seem really sad to me. So maybe I should ask, so has Iowa City been depressing to you? Everyone I've ever known that lived in Iowa City, they said a dark cloud hangs over Iowa City, even in a sunny day. And uh, it's like, so, and I kind of felt that. So, so Iowa City seemed dark and depressing. Oh, yes, it has. Wow, it's so good to be here in Southern California. It's like, you know, it's not the city. I think there's something spiritual going on in Iowa City, is what I said. So I'm kind of throwing out the bait. I'm trying to say, so where are you? Where are you? They didn't take it. But I was trying to engage their soul. And so engaging someone requires, calls for vision, curiosity, and creativity. Vision. I, I know exactly what these, this young couple and their kids were made for. They were made to know God and to rejoice in Him and to love Him. That they, they were made to be seen, loved, and enjoyed by God and other people.
Mark 1.11, jot this down. It says of Jesus, this was right after he was baptized, it said, a voice came out of heaven, you are my son, he was seen, whom I love, he was loved, with you I am well pleased, he was enjoyed. Jesus had not yet led a Bible study, he hadn't yet created, done any miracles, but the father looked at him and said, you're seen, you're loved, and you're enjoyed. And you know, we were made for that. We were made to be that way. And I knew that my vision for this young couple was, I knew that there was probably more that God had for them that they were missing. I had a vision for them. It calls for curiosity. Uh, I was extremely curious. I hope they didn't think I was interviewing them for some newspaper article. But I was just asking them questions. You know, there's a lack of curiosity. You know, if you go around and say to one of your friends, well, I saw a good movie this weekend, and they say, I did too. <laughs> you know, curiosity, someone says, I saw this movie, instead of you just saying, oh, yeah, I saw that, curiosity would be, really, what would you like about it? Tell me, oh, really? I... I didn't see that in the movie, but that's cool. You know, why do you think you like that so much? And so you're, you're, you're being curious. You're trying to engage them on a soul level. And you're narrowing that focus to what's going on in their heart, in their soul. And there's got to be creativity. I mean, I love reading the Gospels. I, I read the Gospels with several times a year with several different perspectives. One way to read the gospel is saying, who did Jesus see God is? Another way to read the gospel is to say, you know, how did Jesus respond creatively to people? I mean, he was the creator of the universe. And to me, you read Jesus' responses to people, they're extremely creative. And the way we respond to people is usually pretty boring, right? We don't have creativity. So to engage the soul, you pray, God, help me be creative as I interact with these people. And uh, that's what it means to enter in. And uh, you say, man, that seems like it's a lot of work. And it's like, yes, it is. You kind of got to be on your toes. You got to be connected to the Father. It's just like what John was, Strap was saying. He gave all the preparation for this. Now this is what it looks like. This is the work of it. That you are pursuing, you're trying to get to a soul level. You're being honest about your own soul and where you are. So you enter in, and then the second part is you journey with. Unfortunately, our journey with this young couple from Iowa City ended when we entered Buzz Lightyear. He killed it, right? They went one way, we went the other, we never saw them again. And you trust. If I can't journey with people, I trust that whatever time God has allowed me to be with them, that he will use that for his purposes. Because those people were prayed for. Uh, they were thrown out. The whole concept of a different kind of understanding of God and why Iowa City might seem so dark. And, and so maybe we just did our little bit role in the drama that God has playing out in their lives. But there are some people you'll be able to journey with. You'll journey with your family. 
You'll journey with a roommate this year. You'll journey with people on your campus. You'll have a 16-week journey with the person sitting next to you in chemistry class. How do you journey with people? You enter in and then you journey with. To journey with means you find common interest and ground that you can enjoy together. In Nebraska, that common interest and ground is football. It's not always enjoyable, but it is football. And uh, so you can talk about football. You can see if they go to the game. You can do, you know, you begin to think, how can I journey with this person in my class? How can I journey with the people around me? Bring them in to my life. And the people who are already believers, the people in your Christian Challenge ministries, the, the person you don't know very well that doesn't seem like anyone's really caring for them or interacting with them. Well, how can I journey with them? How can I enter into their life and begin to journey with them? And I, I wrote down push versus pull because there's a huge question of whether discipleship is pushing someone or pulling someone. And uh, I was listening to a talk by Dallas Willard. You guys have heard of him? Uh, don't try reading his books, but he's... <laughs> Uh, good luck. No, great books. It just takes a while to read them, like one sentence every day. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, he was, he was talking about discipleship is not about pushing people. That we really do discipleship wrong when we push people. Because for Jesus, it never was pushing anything. People in, that were around Jesus were being pulled it's like there's this gravitational force around Jesus that just pulled people to him. And in journeying with people, you don't want to push them. You want to pull them by your example. Uh, John 1, 38 through 40, uh, Jesus shows up on the scene. John the Baptist is there. He's baptizing people. And suddenly, John the Baptist says, there he is. There he is. And the disciples of John the Baptist coming and say, where are you going? And Jesus said, well, come and see. And they followed him. The reason they followed is there was pull there. It doesn't say that he pushed them. It says they followed him. And as you are investing in people in Christ, you know, you pray that they will be pulled toward how you're living the Christian life. There'll be something attractive that they will want, that they will see. And uh, there are some things that can stop the journey, and I've, I've written them down. Um, and I'll kind of go through this little laundry list of what will stop it. What kills the journey of people, whether you're witnessing to people or you're discipling people? Well, when you give advice without being asked, you know, how is it for you when your mother gives you advice that you didn't ask for? You like that? Max Barnett always said, unasked for advice is always viewed as criticism. And isn't that right? Your mother says, well, let me tell you what I think you should do about your hair to a girl. You know, isn't that nice when your mom gives you advice about how you should wear your hair? Or I think you should do this or that. That just stops the journey. It's like, Okay, I'm getting off here. I'm done. And in journeying with people, be careful to not give advice. And Christians, by golly, are the worst advice givers. Mary and I are in small group with some folks. Jeez, we, 
Yeah, I don't want to go there. Uh, a second stopper is shock and disgust. When, you, when you're journeying with people, there are things that are going to be shared and said, and you're going to see them do things that might shock you or disgust you. But to, to be shocked or show disgust, that stops the journey. It's like, I have some, um, some of our alums lived in Montana for a while, and, and they were really, um, you know, I, I grew up in alcoholic for home, and so alcohol was like not a good thing. And then I went to a Southern Baptist church, and alcohol was really not a good thing. And uh, the reason they didn't want you to have premarital sex is they thought maybe you would drink alcohol after it. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> So it's kind of like, okay, but these alums in, in Montana, they had found the freedom, oh Lord, and I, I went to see them, and the amount of, I don't know when some, I mean, seriously, I have so little experience with alcohol, it's ridiculous. I feel like, a, like you know, I belong to a different age. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they were drinking alcohol and toasting. So the way they did the toast, this is totally off the subject. I feel like I'm John Strapazon. <laughs> John, stop channeling yourself, buddy. <laughs> so these guys, the way they celebrated birthdays is that they would toast. They go around and toast uh, one toast for every year of the birthday that this person had. And uh, so, but they wouldn't, it wasn't like a shot to the back. It was like a sip of whatever they were had, which was wine that night. I mean, they had lots of bottles of wine, lots of different kinds of wine. And I actually found a wine that I liked the taste of. I'd never, it all tastes kind of like cough syrup to me until that point. But anyway, um, I knew that I would stop my journey with these alums if I showed shock and disgust. Uh, I did ask one of the guys who was driving. Uh, <laughs> I said, how do you know whether, I, I said, you know I'm an idiot when it comes to this stuff, but how do you know whether you're drunk or not? I mean, I know the cops can help you know that for sure, <laughs> but how do you know? <laughs> I didn't like his answer, but anyway. <laughs> Oh, Lord, help me. Okay. Um, you, that Shock and disgust would have stopped the journey. I, it had been the end of the road for me with those folks, even though they literally owed me their spiritual life. That had been, it had been over. Uh, and they knew exactly what I thought about what they were doing. They didn't need a little sermon from me. Uh, judgment without understanding will stop the, the journey. Throwing a verse at someone... Uh, will stop the journey. Shaming somebody, you shouldn't be lecturing somebody. Let me tell you, don't you love it when people do this to you? Well, then don't do it to other people, right? Uh, talking too much will stop the journey. Over-identification. Someone tells you something that's gone on in their life and you say, oh, I know how you feel. No, you don't. You're not them. One-upsmanship with your story. Somebody tells a story and you tell another one. Their journey helpers. Look at people when they're talking. That helps. 
ask questions, hold your feelings in reserve, um, validate their story by believing them, give hope to people by not labeling them. Those help the journey. Um, and I, the journey really is about life together. In Mark 3.14, it just says, Jesus called the twelve to be with him. And the primary calling was to be with him. And I was walking around this afternoon, seeing you guys out playing and volleyball and frisbee. And I just thought, you know, this is great. This is great. Uh, I was with a group of alums uh, in Kansas City a few weeks ago who are in their careers. They've got kids and they don't have the time or opportunity to do what you guys did this afternoon. This is a prime time in your life to grow and to journey together, to pray together, to play and laugh together, to do meals together, to co-labor together. Journey with. And when you, with your, your jobs, to figure out, you don't want to just journey with your Christian group. You want to journey with the people that aren't yet believers. And you need to, to unite those worlds together to where the peop, they know your friends, you know their friends, and there's kind of life together. Um, I think I have time for this story. No, I don't. It's a good story. You can ask me about it. Uh, the next point, <laughs> impacted by. We are impacted by the people we journey with. To be identified with the sorrows and joys of others. I got to thinking in the middle of the night a few weeks ago. I was praying over this meeting and praying to God to give me illustrations and all that. And I didn't sleep much that night. But I got to thinking about how bowling and golf both involve impact. Um, let me have a picture of the bowling alley up there. Yeah, that's kind of grainy. Peters, I need some help on that. But um, in this, this diagram, the, that ball is impacted very little by the pins it hits, right? And it's about power. It's about powering that ball down and impacting those pins and the high score wins. And in this analogy, the discipler is the bowling ball and the pins are the disciplee. And the goal of the discipler is just to knock them down. And the, the, the pins are passive, just waiting to be knocked down. And I know too many people that that's what discipleship and evangelism is. It's about launching something powerful and knocking people down and going, yeah, once you get the strike. And uh, I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's much more like golf. And let's see how this picture looks. Oh, that's a lot better. That's a picture, aerial view of St. Andrews in Scotland. My grandson was born in St. Andrews. And so I got to go there. I played golf there twice. And what you're looking at are three courses. They're intertwined together. It's crazy. They have greens that have two holes on them. You know, one for one course, one for another. And uh, they have what's called the old course that was built in the 1400s. The Jubilee course was built in 1887. 
And the new course was built in 1895, okay? <laughs> so I played the new course, 1895. I played it twice. And uh, golf is, it's about impact, but it's finesse. And finesse means it's about skill and artistry. That there is power involved, but it's, it's the power when everything is lined up and, and your club hits the sweet spot and the ball effortlessly goes into the air. And you see, the person that you're discipling or the person you're trying to help come to Christ, they are the golfer. And that ball is their life, their life purpose. And the whole is, is God's will. When they find God or when they find God's will. And what you are, you're the coach. You're helping them make that stroke. And you are impacted by what happens to them. When they hit the ball in the rough, you go help them find the ball in the rough and retrieve the ball. And uh, you see, we've got to change our idea of what it means to disciple someone or evangelize someone. It's not something we do to someone. It's something we help them do. It's something we help them find God. We, we help them find an area of obedience in their life. And so you guys remember the movie The Matrix? If you've seen it. You remember the scene where there's the red pill and the green pill? And it's like one will quiet you and let you sleep through terror. Frankly, I think that's the one they give at church. <laughs> then there's this other pill that says it will awaken you and make you a warrior and I'll tell you if we are going to be effective for Christ we have got to be awakened to be warriors we're in a battle that requires warriors and we will be impacted by people and uh, I remember I was with these alums in Kansas City a couple of weeks ago, and there was a guy there that was on a mission trip with Mary and me in 1989. And Mary was talking to him, and she just shared this conversation uh, with me later that she said to this guy, Dana, she said, uh, Dana, because of our experience with you and that team in 1989, that's why we built Focus. This team in 1989 was like the team you want to kill yourself if you're the leader. It was a terribly difficult team. It was a divided team. And the leaders weren't very good either. And uh, that was me. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember this one night after we'd had a knockdown drag out, the students yelling at each other and then me yelling at the students. Remember the rage thing I told you about? Yeah. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> it was not my finest hour. Um, I was standing out on this deck and uh, Dana came up and he said, are you okay? And I'm going, no, actually, I'm not okay. In fact, I am never, ever going to do this again. This is the last team that I will ever lead or sponsor to do an international project. And Dana said... Please don't say that. Please, please don't say that. And in my humility, I said, well, it's true. I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> and uh, 
But yet, as I walked past that experience and listened to God, I could hear his voice, Dana's voice, saying, please don't do that. And, and that was sort of the emotional seed for me to say, we've got to prepare teams and people to do it better than what we did. Because we absolutely failed at that. And we've got to do it better. See, I was impacted by. And you, there's no one that you are going to disciple or lead to Christ that you're not impacted by them. It's not the bowling ball rolling down the, the alley. It's about you being impacted by them. Someone said, well, Jesus wasn't impacted. You say, well, this is, in, and I, seriously, as I've shared this, I've had someone say, well, Jesus wasn't impacted. And I'm going, really? Well, what about in John 11 when Lazarus was dead and they walked up and Jesus is there and it says Jesus wept. Oh, I guess he wasn't impacted, was he? Or what about when he, in uh, Matthew 13, 58, it says he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. He was impacted. We're impacted by the people we're with. And, and one of the things that impacts us and will impact you is betrayal. That if you get involved in the discipling of other people, there will be in your life betrayal. Jesus said in Luke, some of you are experiencing it. Jesus said in Luke 21, 15, you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You know, being impacted by people that you love and try to care and all they do is just turn it on you and you have this sense of betrayal. It's what we should expect. Betrayal can name you. They can call you worthless rather than trusting, friendless, rather than trusting. And the question is, are you willing to do battle with what might break your heart? Are you willing to trust God rather than running away or medicating yourself? The final thing, enter in, journey with, be impacted by, and then breathe life into, to invest a li in a life-giving way to others. This, this familiar passage, Philippians 1.21, Paul said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What is it for you to live? How would you fill in that blank for you? For me to live. Where, where do you find real life? Because where you... If you don't find real life in Christ, then you're not going to be able to breathe Christ into the people around you, whether they're a Christian or not yet a Christian. For to me to live is Christ. Or is for me to live football, basketball, the final four, sports. That's when I'm really alive. Or is, is I'm really alive when there's something sexual going on. Or I'm really alive in video games. Or I'm really alive when I get good grades. Where do you get life? Where, where is your hope? Where, where are you really filled? Most of us, we find life in something we can control. Or we find life in some form of relief. And that's where we go to life. And our repentance 
has got to be against those things if we're going to breathe life into people. I had a neighbor who died a number of years ago of lung cancer, and when she was going through uh, some treatment, I was talking to her about her cancer doctor, and she said, my doctor hates cancer. She said, he, my doctor, it was a woman doctor, she, she said, she takes me to the edge of death and then brings me back in order to kill cancer. And I'm thinking, you know what, folks? There's cancer in this room. It's a spiritual cancer that Satan has against Christ being your life. And yet, rather than trying to kill it and trying to say, no, it's going to be Christ only, we just let it survive and eat on us. And we will never be able to breathe life into other people if we are filled with the cancer of something besides Jesus being what brings us life. Well, I want to jump to how you pull this off in helping Christians and non-Christians to become better followers of Christ. And, and Strap hit this, and we're on the same page. It's dependence and prayer. Prayer is just a huge thing to pray for the people that you meet with, to pray for people that aren't yet believers, to pray for your family members that don't know Christ, to not give up on them, to believe that prayer is the ministry. And I want to close with answering this question. I know I'm just kind of like a fire hydrant tonight, but I got about a minute here. Why aren't we investing in people? And I'll tell you a story. I've got, I think it's printed out. Do I have it all printed out, the four things? Yeah. You can read. Uh, when we were getting ready to go to Miami, I went in to see one of my mentors, Gene War, the rich guy who rebuked Mary and I for having a lousy marriage. And uh, before we went to Florida, he said, Brett, why is it that most people don't do discipleship? Why is it most people are not investing their life in other people? And I wanted to be smart, and uh, that's part of my MO. And uh, I said, well, Gene, I think it's because they don't know about it. And he just shook his head. Nope. And then I just sat there, and he just sat there. And I'm like, okay. So what do you think, Gene? And he said, it's because it costs too much. And I thought at the time, I thought, that's wrong you know, in my, all my humility, and uh, that's wrong, <laughs> but you know what? It's exactly right. The reason you guys are not going to evangelize or disciple other people, if you choose to not do those things, is not because you don't know about it, because I think I was here when you heard about it, right? And uh, it's because it will cost too much. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you money. It'll cost you rejection, heartbreak, betrayal. It'll cost you being misunderstood. It'll cost you having to separate yourself from sin and cling to Christ. It'll cost too much. And for the vast majority of people here, unless this is an unusual group, the vast majority of you will take these notes 
and you'll agree with it here today, and you'll think that's really good, and in about two weeks on your campus, you will have no memory of this event or any commitment that you made because, it's not because you're not sincere tonight, it's because it would cost too much to make a change in your life, to put other people in your life, to put Christ first in your life and to say, Jesus, for me to live is Christ. And I hope you'll prove me wrong on that. I hope something will begin here that you'll begin to think seriously about rearranging your life, your time, to where it centers around Christ and His kingdom, and that you will seek to not just widen your world, but narrow your focus to say, I'm on this campus for a reason, to walk with Jesus. My reason for being here is not simply to get a degree and to have friends and to date and to have a good time. I hope all those things happen. But my primary reason to be here is to know Jesus and make him known to other people and help them to know him. Father, I pray for each of us. I know the, the pull of sin in my own life is to fill in that blank with something besides Christ. And as I think about that equation every day, uh, I can fill in and I'm tempted to fill in other things that for me to live is something besides you. And God, I pray for your grace and mercy for my life and for everyone here that uh, from this day on that we would seek with greater awareness and alertness and passion to make our life to be aligned with your life, Jesus, and that you would flow through us to other people. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.